0: Jesus, thank you that your grip on us is surer than our grip on you. As we turn our hearts and minds toward you today, just invite you to stir in us, yeah, just deeper affection, deeper faith, deeper trust in all of who you are. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be in Jeremiah 29 today. Jeremiah 29. In the matrix, we find humanity in crisis. The technology we created to serve us has found its way to sentience. I need to stop and say something. So there's this thing that's happening and been happening for about a year with my breathing. And uh, some of it's asthma related. And, uh, but there's this thing that happens where, as the last, a doctor's told me, the last 50% of my air leaves my lungs, my lungs quiver. Uh, and so I'm feeling like just really out of breath. Um, and I don't know if that's what it is, but can I just pray into that for a minute, and could you pray with me into that for a minute, and then I'll start again. Is that okay? I'm just really, I feel like super vulnerable right now about it, but I just feel like I kind of need to, yeah, would you? Yeah. I don't say that so that you're worried about me, and the only conversation I have with you after is, are you okay? I'm okay. Okay? So, yes, yeah, the first time I've preached twice in a row in like a month. So, we'll get back to it. In the matrix, we find humanity in crisis. In the matrix, you know, neo The technology we created to serve us has found its way to sentience, and it has enslaved humanity. Reality in the matrix is just a computer program piped into our minds, and a select few find their way into the real reality, where humanity scrapes by a living in these small corners of the world where they can hide from the robots that dominate society, but they do more than scrape by. They've created enclaves of joy and flourishing, even in the midst of their marginalized existence. So too in The Mandalorian, the show on Disney Plus. And by the way, if neither of these illustrations make sense to you, one, what are you doing with your life? And two, I will trade you a sports metaphor later, okay? In The Mandalorian, we counter a group of armored warriors living beneath the city. In hiding holding tightly to what remains of their culture they do not remove their helmets they do not back down and battle they defend the weak why because this is the way the matrix and the Mandalorian these are stories of exile of a minority living on the fringes Finding a path not just to surviving but thriving in the margins of society. And that's what we need in this cultural moment as followers of Jesus. We need a way to flourishing in the midst of a rapidly changing society. The last two years, not to mention the last 10 years, have been a jarring change, especially for those of us that have been following Jesus for a long time. And so what is our place in a society where a couple decades ago, being a Christian, we were, we were viewed as adding benefit to society. Now, our way of life, the fundamental core of what we believe, especially as it relates to abortion and sexuality and ultimate truth, these things are not just unpopular, they are dangerous to our society. What is the way? How do we find a way like the Matrix or the the Mandalorians? How do we find our way through exile, through surviving into thriving in this cultural moment? What I want us to look at this morning is the image of exile that plays such a significant role in the Old Testament this image of exile that shaped the imagination of New Testament authors as they wrote and discipled their churches. And to do that, we'll look at Jeremiah chapter 29, and my hope is that you'll never look at Jeremiah 29, 11, the verse that maybe your grandma wrote in your high school graduation card. Uh, you'll never look at it the same way. But what I want us to do before we get to Jeremiah 29 is consider exile. Exile in the imagination of the Old Testament, and then exile now. Now, while it might be unfamiliar to you, exile is a significant theme in the Scriptures. It's a harsh reality faced by God's people, Israel, in the Old Testament. And the story of Israel, it goes like this. Let me just summarize all of the Old Testament in about five minutes, if I can. Okay. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and He saw that everything He created in them, including you and I, our, our first parents, Adam and Eve, He saw that they were good. Of course, through disobedience, humanity plunges all of the created order and our very bodies and our souls into chaos and, and to sin and to ruin. And so, God launches a rescue plan, a rescue plan to restore all of creation and our relationship humanity's relationship with God, and he chooses to launch that rescue plan through one man and his descendants. His name is Abraham. God calls Abraham to himself and says, through you, Abraham, all the descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants, which that's a joke to Abraham, by the way, because he and his wife Sarah are about a hundred years old each and can't get pregnant when they were young, much less now that they're Triple digits. They do get pregnant. In fact, the book of Genesis, it's not a science textbook. The book of Genesis is this primarily the story of one family line, which grows throughout the book of Genesis into the beginning of Exodus, which Kristen's going to be leading a study on in February. Uh, in the book of Exodus, the Abraham's descendants are so many uh, that while they're living in Egypt, a place that they've escaped to to find food in a famine the kings and rulers find this foreign people group within their borders troubling. Does that sound familiar? So what they do is they enslave that people group. Uh, And Israel cries out to the Lord after all of these decades of slavery, centuries of slavery, and God raises up a man named Moses. And Moses goes to the people of Israel to save them leads them out through the red sea and at the foot of a mountain called sinai god creates a covenant with his people he says i'll be your god you'll be my people here's how our little marriage agreement is going to work and that marriage agreement is explained in the book of exodus leviticus and numbers those books that when you start to read the bible for a year you quit right um I'm going to fast forward a little bit, but eventually God brings his people to the edge of the promised land, the land that he promised Abraham his descendants would dwell in forever. The only problem with dwelling in this land is it seems to have been overtaken by other people, Canaanites and Hittites and Philistines, and so in order to take up the promise that God has given them, the Israelites will have to fight to receive it and then fight to hold it. And so they go to war. They, uh, do, they cleanse the land uh, of these people groups, and we could get into the ethics of that at another point. Uh, and then fast forward a little bit. As they're established in the land, uh, Israel, they get itchy, and they notice that all of the other nations around them have a king. I mean, they have a king. It's the Lord, but they want like a king king, you know, not like a spiritual king, but like a king. And so they reject the Lord, and the Lord gives them kings. And A handful of them are pretty good, and most of them are really, really terrible. So terrible, in fact, that this united kingdom and the people of Israel breaks into two. God sends some prophets uh, to try to call his people back to himself, addressing their sin and their societal sins, and they don't really listen. And so what happens is uh, the Assyrians, uh, a mighty military power at this time, uh, come, and they totally wipe out the northern kingdom. They kill them all so that only the southern kingdom remains. And the Lord is trying to plead with his people to remain faithful through the prophets, and they don't. And so in fulfillment of God's warnings, Israel, the whole culture, the whole people group, is scooped up and taken to a foreign nation. Now this is how the Babylonians, this is done by the Babylonians in 586 BC. This this is is how the Babylonians did things. It's really easy to keep your people, your, the people you're ruling under your control if you scoop people up from here and move them over here and move these people over here and these people over here. If, if nobody around you can speak your language, you can't really foment rebellion super well. So the Babylonians do this deportation exile thing. The Israelites are carried away into exile. And if you want to know what that feels like, I want you to imagine that you're a Browns fan. And I want you to imagine that you wake up tomorrow and you're at the Super Bowl and the Browns are on the field playing, and everybody around you is wearing brown stuff, and, and you look up at the scoreboard, and the Browns are winning. They are beating the New England Patriots 50 to zero. It's the last minute of the quarter. The Browns are at the, at the end zone. They do whatever football teams do. They score more points. <laughs> and suddenly, suddenly everybody around you is screaming words that you have never heard before as a Browns fan we won. We won. You, here's, as this moment is happening, as people are celebrating and doing all these things, you as a Browns fan have no idea what to do with your life. You have no idea what to do with yourself. What is this language they're speaking? What are the things that are happening around me? That's what it feels like to be in exile. It feels like being in a place where everybody is speaking a foreign language, where everybody has foreign customs, where everybody is doing things differently. You are a minority. That's what it feels like to be an exile. Now here's my contention for you this morning. you and i as the people of jesus in our cultural moment we are in exile the biblical image that needs to shape the way that we engage in our friends and neighbors and with our culture has to be shaped by exile the bible talks a lot about understanding the signs of the times And this morning, I want us to consider the signs of the times together and to root ourselves in the right narrative, the right image within Scripture so that we can engage in the signs of the times the way that Jesus is calling us to do, to be faithful to this moment. Because to be faithful to that moment now is actually to be unfaithful. Right? To be faithful in that moment 50 years ago now is actually being unfaithful to what Jesus is calling us to do and be right now. So how exactly did we get to this moment of exile? How, did it, how is it that our culture has become so secular? I mean, last week, someone handed me a news article, not out of the New York Times, but out of our local paper, the Tribune Chronicle, that said the fastest growing religion in the United States is none. The fastest growing religion in the United States is none. One of the fastest growing religions in the UK is Jedi because people got together and decided that's what they would say their religion is. Uh, But their religion is none. Uh, 10% Barna, Barna research group says that just 10% of young adults are resilient disciples, just 10% of young adults in the United States are resilient disciples. How is it that we became more and more, culture, more, and more secular in our culture? Uh, a guy named Aaron Wren just put out an article this week in First Things, uh, and he, the article was sent to me by the academic dean of my seminary, which was kind of exploring how it is that we got to this moment of secularization. So he says, Aaron Wren says, that before 1994, we lived in what he calls the positive world. In the positive world, society retains a mostly positive view of Christianity. Uh, to be known as a good church-going man or woman remains part of being an upstanding citizen. Publicly being a Christian is a status enhancer. Christian moral norms are the basic moral norms of society, and violating them can bring negative consequences. That, that's the positive world. The, the world had a positive feeling toward Christianity in 1994 and before. Which is why, if you were a Christian pre-1994, the last 25 years have just been so jarring, right? Because in 1994, we entered the neutral world, and I can send you the article if you wanna know why he dates what he dates, but in the neutral world, society takes a neutral stance toward Christianity. Christianity no longer has a privileged status, but it is not disfavored. Being publicly known as a Christian has neither positive nor negative impacts on one's social status. Christianity is a valid option within a pluralistic public square. Uh, Then, but what happens though is we move out of this neutral world where, you know, kind of shaped by the tolerance of the moment into 2014, we enter the negative world. Why 2014? By the way, it's the Obergefell decision when gay marriage was legalized in the United States by the Supreme Court. He says, in the negative world, society has come to have a negative view of Christianity. Being known as a Christian is a social negative, particularly in the, in the elite domains of society. Christian morality is expressly repudiated and is seen as a threat to the public good and the new public moral order. Subscribing to Christian moral views or violating the secular moral order brings negative consequences. Now, here's why we have to understand the signs of the times. Because if we're, if we're still living in the positive world, where everybody's Christian or has Christian values, we will still be living like Jerry Falwell's moral majority lived throughout most of the 80s, which is Christian morality is how most Americans believe, so we need to fight to take back our cultural institutions in such a way that they reflect our values, right? And that was a a tactic that they, they used then when most people kind of behaved like Christians. The image, I would argue, that they were using was the Israelites taking the land, right? we're gonna to go to battle to take back the land that's ours and, and these kinds of things. In the neutral world, you tend to see a posture of um, a lot of apologetics work. Hey, let me show you how Christianity is rational and good for society. And let me kind of make these arguments. I, I would say a biblical image for this person while she comes out of exile is Esther, because Esther is a woman of, of high status in her society who leverages her position to kind of protect her people. right? Uh, But the signs of the times are not that we're in the neutral world, the signs of the times aren't that we are in the positive world, the signs of the times are that we are in the negative world. And in the negative world, the image that should dominate our minds and our imaginations and our engagement with our friends and neighbors is ultimately that of exile. It's ultimately that of exile. Now you and I in our exile are not ethnic minorities in the same way that Israel was. Israel was an ethnic minority in Babylon. They were also a cultural minority in Babylon. We're not ethnic minorities, we're actually ethnically the dominant, but we are culturally minorities and we're what sociologists call a cognitive minority. A cognitive minority, it simply refers to this idea that our very patterns of thinking are at odds with the dominant culture. Art and Pam experienced this when they were in Thailand. Just their normal patterns of thinking, the order of operations from A to B to C was at odds with the culture they were in, right? Uh, And you and I are in a similar moment in exile that our cognitive way of thinking, our value systems, our social norms, they're at increasingly sharp odds with those of our host culture. And that doesn't just mean like teaching on sexuality. I was just talking to somebody this morning about the practice of hospitality as we do it as a church and try to teach it, right? What is the cultural norm here in the Mahoning Valley, right? We need to bring out the china, we need to wine and dine you, we need to entertain you, we need to thrill you, we need to do all this thing, and I say, here's what hospitality is, order a pizza and eat it on paper plates. And some people, especially those of you over 50, would rather die, right? But our cultural norms are increasingly sharp sharp odds with our host culture. Walter Brueggemann, who's an Old Testament scholar who writes a lot about exile, he says that exile is the experience of knowing that one is an alien. And perhaps even in a hostile environment where the dominant values run counter to one's own, Another couple of authors, Wendy Everett and Peter Wagstaff, note that this sense of exile or alienation may result in an un- inability or unwillingness to conform to the tyranny of the majority opinion. Hear me on this. You and I are receiving constant pressure from the left and the right to conform to the, to the norm, right? From the right and the left. But really, Paul Tabori gets it right when he says that to be in exile is to be an outcast within one's own country, to be in exile is to be an outcast in one's own country. John Mark Comer, uh, in his excellent book, Live No Lies, says that the Barna Group called our cultural moment digital Babylon, digital Babylon, and here's why. In a pre-digital world, before you and I had phones and tablets and 24-hour news, In a pre-digital world, to experience the cognitive dissonance of exile, you had to attend a far-left university or live in the urban core of a secular city like Portland or LA or London or Berlin. Now all you need is an iPhone and Wi-Fi. all you need is an iPhone and Wi-Fi and you're in digital Babylon. He says, we're all in Babylon now. Now listen, I I think that... um, We live in Trumbull County, we live in Northeast Ohio, so it generally takes a couple extra years for things from the coasts to make their way here, right? So, you know, by the time people here started wearing skinny jeans, that fad was over in New York and LA. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, it just kind of takes some time to work its way to the center. I would say that the coasts of our country and other major urban cores, even like Columbus and Cleveland, are in this more negative world. It's taking more time for our general population here in our area to move into the negative world. But I would say the younger you are, the faster the transition into the negative world has been. Right? Um, And so if you have kids in school and high school, like how do I help them navigate these conversations about sexual identity and transgenderism, which is just very real right now, right? You feel that if you're a parent. If you're like a younger person who's more digitally connected, you're just more deeply vested in digital Babylon and in that negative world than you might be if you're over 55. That's not to say that you aren't, but it's just to say like different generations are experiencing the speed of that transition differently. But whether or not we realize it, we are all in Babylon now. So what do we do while we're in Babylon? This image of exile is not just an Old Testament image, it's a New Testament one. In fact, Peter opens his letter to the elect exiles in Babylon. He's not writing to people in Babylon. He's writing to people wherever they're a minority, wherever they're a cognitive, spiritual, cultural minority, mostly in, in Rome at the time. But he, he writes his letter this way. In 1 Peter 1, he says, I am an apostle on assignment by Jesus, the Messiah, writing to exiles scattered to the four winds. Now, this is the message translation, so I like what it says next. Not one is missing. Not one is forgotten. God the Father has his eye on each of you and has determined by the work of the Spirit to keep you obedient through the sacrifice of Jesus. He says, hey, you exiles living in Babylon, whether Babylon is New York or L.A. or Rome or Youngstown or Gerard or Howland or Cortland or Warren, Wherever your exile is, you are not missing. You are not forgotten. God the Father has his eye on you. So we aren't in Kansas anymore, Toto. We aren't in Kansas anymore, Toto. But there is a way to thriving in exile. There is a way to thriving in exile. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 29 together. Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah wrote a letter from Jerusalem to the elders, priests, prophets, and all the people who had been exiled by Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. I was a kid raised on veggie tales, so when you say Nebuchadnezzar, I think the bunny, the bunny. Ooh, I love the bunny. Okay. This was after King Jehoiakim, the queen mother, all the court officials, and the other officials of Judah, and all the craftsmen and artisans had been deported from Jerusalem. Okay, let's just stop and look how exile was working. They have taken the religious leadership class, priests, elders, prophets, right? They have taken the governing class, the queen mother, the court officials, and other officials of Judah, and they have taken the business class, the craftsmen and artisans. The only people really left in the Southern Kingdom at this point, Jeremiah stayed with them, are basically poor people right? The, the core of all of their culture is gone. It's in Babylon now. And Je- Jeremiah is writing them a letter. He sends a letter with some people, and this is what Jeremiah's letter says in verse 4. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to the captives. He is exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Here's what the Lord says. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children, then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply, do not dwindle away, and work for the peace and the prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. Verse 8, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Do not let your prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Do not listen to their dreams. Because they are telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years. In other words, it'll be over when I say it's over. But then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised and I will bring you home again for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. In our moment of exile, Jeremiah says, chill out. In our moment of exile, Jeremiah says, get comfy. In our moment of exile, Jeremiah says, plan to stay. Don't get desperate. Don't get mad. Don't get anxious. Don't like, press against the bonds of exile. He says, plan to stay. Presidents and politicians and pundits, and podcasts and Instagram influencers may promise you an expedited exile. But as they do, they fall into the category of verses eight and nine. Do not let your prophets and fortune tellers just replace the word profits with talking head on cable news. Replace fortune teller with Instagram influencer. Replace prophet with the podcast that you listen to about government affairs. Do not let your prophets and fortune-tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Do not listen to their dreams because they are telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them. Presidents and politicians cannot give what is not theirs to provide. Presidents and politicians cannot give what is not theirs to provide. If we are in exile, it is the Lord's doing, and if it is the Lord's doing, only the Lord can get us out, right? Verse four says, to all the captives, he has exiled. Who is the he? The Lord. The Lord exiled them. Verse seven says, the city where I sent you into exile. Peter calls them elect exiles. Thereby God's choosing. It was the Lord's doing. And yet the Father has his eye on each of you. So it's the Lord's doing. And because it's the Lord's doing, only the Lord can lead us out. And until God leads us out, until he does a new thing, until the time is up, what you do in the, here's what you do when you've heard something from God and you're waiting to hear the next thing from God, you just keep doing the last thing he told you until he tells you differently, yeah? Right? Right? So God tells you something and then it gets a little hard and so you think, I'll just do something different, but until God tells you to do something different, you have to stay at your post. Right? And so God is saying, state your post. You're in exile for as long as I want you to be there. So while you're there, go ahead and plan to stay. And instead of trying to get out of exile, Jeremiah calls the people not to fight against exile, but to take on a posture of blessing and serving the city in which they find themselves. Verse 7 says, work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. Jeremiah says, pray for the city. Jeremiah says, serve the culture in which you're in exile. Pray and serve. Now that's starting to sound familiar, isn't it? It's almost as if like Jeremiah were telling his people, hey, begin with prayer. It's almost as if Jeremiah were saying to his people, go ahead and serve your friends and neighbors. You know what steps should we take as we seek the welfare of the city? Well, it would probably be good if we listened to our friends and neighbors to see what concerns they had. Man, a handy way to listen to them might be to eat a meal with them in these homes that we've built. I mean, somebody might as well use it, right? And maybe, just maybe, maybe while we are around our table and we've been listening to one another, I'll get the opportunity to share my story. See, you just thought we did this book study and you could move on, didn't you? You can't, because it turns out that the way of exile is the way of blessing. The way of exile is the way of blessing. We spend our exile not not pushing against its bonds nor trying to start a fight. Instead, we take on a posture of blessing. And, And here's why this is so important. Politicians and pundits want to get you anxious about the areas of your life in which you have the least influence. I don't know about you, but when I watch the news, I get super anxious in part because I am very helpless to resolve what is going on. And politicians and pundits use that fear on both the right and the left, they use that fear to get me to forego expending my influence where it could matter most to exert my influence where it matters least. I have massive influence over what happens in my home. I have massive influence over my neighbors, which sounds like I'm a like dark lord of the Sith. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm just saying the place of my influence... The place of my influence is with my friends and my neighbors. My place of my influence is with y'all. The place of my influence is with my family. The place of my influence is with baristas at certain places. or That's the place of my influence. I get to exert my influence over national problems once every two years and I click a button and I'm delegating that to somebody else and it's theirs to deal with. And what they want is they want to keep me captured in that narrative in such a way that I totally forget to exert my influence where it matters most. You and I, here's the thing, you want to see our culture change. Conservatives especially will tell this to me all the time. The only way to see our culture change is by one heart at a time. But then I don't see conservatives engaging in a blessing lifestyle that could very possibly change hearts. So of course we're going to legislate it because it's faster. Right. If you want to see hearts change and our society change, here's how you do that: give everyone in your neighborhoods and networks multiple opportunities to see here and respond to the good news of Jesus. Bring the kingdom of God into your home and into your neighborhood and into your sphere of influence now. Right. Operate out of a posture of blessing. And you might say, but Kyle, like I know my neighbors. I know what yard signs they put out during voting times. Those are my enemies. So what? If you claim the name of Jesus, you claim the name of Jesus who says, love, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you and in that way you will prove yourselves to be true, true children of my Father in heaven. How do we prove ourselves, by the way, to be true children of our Father in heaven? Not by knowing more scripture, but by loving our enemies better than anybody else in our culture. Right? That's PhD level love. Right? Anybody can love their friends. Anybody can love their family. The people of Jesus, we've got to have doctorates in love. We're the people that love our enemies. And you might say, Kyle, that sounds really, really hard. Of course it's hard. Jesus did it for three and a half years, and it killed him, and I'm asking you to do it for the rest of your life. To love is to die. But we do it, and we do it freely. Because we serve a God who says, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans for a future and a hope. Because I know that the Lord has our exiles, timing and status in his hands. And by the way, the feeling of exile is only gonna grow over the next six to eight years. It's just gonna continue to get worse. It's not gonna get better. I don't care who we vote for in two years, it's gonna get worse. Okay? The Lord's timing of our exile is in his hands. What's in my hands is exerting my sphere of influence, blessing people, loving my enemies, caring for people, and trusting that the Lord has his hand on me. And, and this verse that, that you know my grandma wrote in my, my card for my high school graduation and that friends and family wrote in the cards that they gave Steph and I when we got married, it's true. The Lord has plans to prosper me and not to harm me, but here's the deal. When we read the Bible, let's nerd out for a second in the last few minutes. The Bible's power, the Lord has vested his authority and the power of his word in the original context to which it was said. So the power of this verse isn't, spoken to people that are cultural when it's spoken to cult, people that are culturally powerful this verse isn't aimed as people who are culturally powerful which is what Kyle is at 18 coming out of the family he's going to with a full ride at college that's culturally powerful it's 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 good news to me but if you are culturally weak this is the best news that you have ever heard if you are culturally weak this is the best news that you have ever heard If you're waking up in the Browns game wondering how in the heck you got here, this is the best news that you have ever heard. Because despite what people say on TV, despite what your neighbors are saying, despite what you're hearing, despite what the talking point says, the Lord knows the plans he has. And by the way, do you notice, I know the plans I have. It's not you singular, it's for I know the plans I have for y'all. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans for future, plans for a hope. in the midst of an exile, as we walk this way, the way of exile is the way of blessing. Begin with prayer. Pray for your neighborhoods and networks. Listen to what you're... Listen. Eat with them. Serve them. Don't ask them to serve you. We're bad missionaries. We ask our non-Christian friends to do 90% of the work and then we'll go 10. We got to go 90%. All right. Share your story. Why? Build homes, plan to stay, plant gardens, eat the food they produce, marry, have children, find spouses for them so that you may have grandchildren, multiply, don't dwindle away, and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. Amen? 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 Amen. Okay, thank you.
1: Here at Regent, one of the things we do is this response time, and we kind of always want to keep in front of us why we're doing what we're doing, because sometimes in church we just start doing things and we're not thinking about them. And one of the passages we always talk about when we talk about this response time is from Matthew 7, where it talks about the wise builder and how he builds his life on the rock and how that rock is hearing God's word and doing what it says. And as Kyle and I were gone um, to LA, we heard from a church planner in India And he was talking about their definition of a disciple, and their definition of a disciple is someone who hears God's word, hears God's voice, and does it and obeys it immediately. And I was so convicted by that because I often hear God's word, and then I think about it, and I try to discern, is that really what God's asking me to do? And I process it, and I talk about it with someone, and then I go off and do something else and totally forget about it. And there's not that immediate sense of responding to God, of being obedient to him. And so um, one of the things I want to kind of challenge you with today, we're going to take the time that we take to listen, to hear God's voice, to see what he's inviting us to, whether that's to be praying for your lost neighbors, whether that's to be engaging in relationship with them, listening to them, eating with them. What is the next step that God's inviting you to do? But then my other challenge is that you would do it this week that you would be obedient, that you would be a disciple who responds with obedience. So let's take a moment and then Father, we thank you that you are God who seeks the lost, that you have a heart for those that are far from you. And Father, while we have that same heart, we also confess that we have a lot of good intentions without a lot of obedience. So we confess that we are distracted by our daily lives, that we're distracted by our own um, needs and wants. We're often distracted by our phones and our screens. So Jesus, I pray that you would break our hearts for what breaks your heart, that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness, that we would take whatever um, links we need to go to tell others about you, to share over, out of the overflow of our love for you, not out of duty, but out of a heart that is so captured by you and what you've done for us. So, God, we confess our own lukewarmness towards you and how that bleeds out into our relationships, and we pray that you would light within us a fire of passion for you and that the overflow of that passion would be a quickness to share about who you are and what you've done for us. So we ask these things in your name. Amen.